Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 192. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy. Yes, welcome to... Show 192, we have the second part of Michael Moorcock's novella, The Black Petals, coming up today as well. I'll tell you what else is coming in. We have Poetry Planets by Diane Severson, with a host of things going on in there, so do look out. And we have the fantastic Larry Santuro. Larry has a new book out called, or a new e-book, or a republished e-book, called Just North of Nowhere. So that's out there now, and I have a great little chat with Larry as well to announce this new book. So please, enjoy the show and stick around. So before we get into this show, just a couple of things. Don't forget, any illustrators, artists out there, drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. Just if you want to be involved with... Volume 3 of Starships Over Stories. These on the hunt for artists and illustrators. So, starshipsover at gmail.com. Now, this is just totally off the track, but you know what I mean? It's nice to get the message out. Can anyone come up with a good name for a website which is about taking photographs of rubbish that I find on the beach <laughs> or along my coastline. Yes, the idea is I'm, I've, I've committed myself. What I'm going to do is every time I take the dogs for a walk, I'm about 500 yards from this gorgeous bit of coastline, and I take the dogs every day, and then we get onto the rocks, and we have a little kind of play around with the, me and the dogs, and sometimes the kids come, and the wife, and, you know, a lovely place. But... There's always bits and bits of rubbish there, you know, and you kind of, t- not turn a blind eye, but you, 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 and then one day I thought, well, I'm going to take that bit of rubbish. There was this big sheet of plastic and it's been there since oodles of time. I don't know how old the thing is, but, and it's always been like wedged in a rock and then it moves to another rock. So the other day I was down there and I thought, I'm going to take that home. Going to take it home and put it in the bin. Do you know what I mean? So wraps it up, takes it home. And I thought, well, I'll take a photograph of it and I'll I'll put it on Twitter. So then I was thinking, well, why why don't you just do that every day? You know what I mean? Every time, or every time I go down to the with the dogs, there might be a, like the odd, say, coke bottle or any little bit of you know rubbish or anything like that. And there's actually round there, there's not because it's 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 a, yes, further down the coast. You get all the beaches, you know, they get a beach at Seaburn and everything like that, and probably oodles of rubbish there, you know what I mean? It'd be a full-time job, just one quarter little section of that beach. But in these rocks, I was thinking, yeah, just, you know, if I pick something, or find something interesting, take it back, take a photograph, I put it on a website. So I'm looking for a name of a website that I could use where basically collecting 
a bit of rubbish or a bit of drift rubbish from the, the coast on you know and, and taking a picture of it and maybe writing a little bit about it whatever that goes like so start again starshipsover at gmail.com if you have a good name for a website have a look on my twitter account it is starshipsover at i think it's at twitter isn't it have a look there because there's low and on my facebook page as well because loads of people have been writing in some great ones you know what i mean so please do that i'll just actually i'll give you a little what some people have been saying one moment now dylan who does my we do the blood and chrome podcast if anyone's you know don't forget we do the blood and chrome podcast every fortnight dylan's come up with sure shit redemption which actually i really do like that one but i, was, I kind of wanted a little bit more you know mm, cutesy but i love that one and we have waste washed ashore floatsome jetsome Couple of, a lot of these have been kind of like taken, do you know what I mean? Jetsam and Floatsam and everything like that's been all all done. Trashcomas.com, Ocean Offerings, Tidewater Treasures, Tony's Tidal Tidbits. <laughs> so if you can come up with a name for a new little website, just where I want to upload some photographs of all the kind of junk I'll find on the beach. Sure shit redemption is still though out there in the lead at the moment. <laughs> yes, I did want a bit cutesy, but if that one that one at the moment is hanging in there, so can you come up with something better than sure shit redemption? <laughs> Cheers, Dylan. Let's get into our first little segment. It is our very own Diane Severson with Portry Planet. Diane. What do you think of when you hear the phrase first contact? Do you think of humankind's first contact with extraterrestrials coming to Earth? Or with us meeting them on their turf? Do you imagine it a positive thing? Or a negative one? What will our relationship to the aliens be? Or does first contact make you think of Star Trek? Welcome to the second installment of Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. I'm not going to talk as much as last time. I'd like to let the poetry speak for itself. What I have for you today is a variety of poems by various authors on the theme of first contact. I think you'll be surprised and delighted by the range of these poets' imaginings of first contact. First Contact by Scott Green Two perceptions of universe merging into one. Delicate are the links that merge and gain strength, the universe still growing. Scott Green lives in New Hampshire and is a poet and writer of nonfiction. He has been a four-term member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives for Manchester He was vice president of the National Writers' Union and a trustee for its at-large chapter, and president of the Science Fiction Poetry Association. His poetry has appeared in dozens of print and web publications, including Asimov's Astropoetica, Mythic Delirium, Starline, and Strange Horizons. He has published several poetry collections, and his latest is called Private Worlds, a revised atlas, published by Speaking Volumes, and is available at the usual online retailers. 
He has written an essay on the history of American genre poetry, which can be found at aboutsf.com. You can find links to Scott's blogs covering paying markets for genre poetry and flash fiction in the show notes. There are many people who believe that aliens are among us at this moment in time. Most of us haven't seen them, though. What do they look like? Do they look just like us? Or do they look so strange that we don't even recognize what they are? How do we communicate? Are we on a level that we could? The Thing in the Gutter by Mike Allen How odd you are, little by-blow, with spongy head and single eye, German cross pupil opened wide as your mouth's surprised O. What twist of fate left you here, with limbs curled in deceased bug repose around this turnip-bulb body, for me to find after a laborious ladder-climb. Perhaps you are the Edgar Allan Poe of your species, misunderstood genius, left to die dissolute in a place where no one knows you. Or more, perhaps like Lovecraft's doomed thing, gurgling out your last breath on a stranger's doorstep, or in this case on the roof just above. Whatever possessed you? Could you be more like Howard, Robert E.? Overwhelmed, driven to jump from some physics-defying spacecraft by the loss of someone you loved a little too much? Or are you a more modern star, partied a little too hard until you choked on your own bile, or whatever flaw your anatomy allows for, and the stop on my roof became your last? Like leaves or rain, you skid into my too-long-neglected gutter to become one with the compost there. Mike Allen is a Nebula Award nominee and editor of the Clockwork Phoenix Anthologies and the poetry journal Mythic Delirium. He was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, six months before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. In his day job, he is the arts columnist for the Roanoke Times in Roanoke, Virginia. He's published five books of poetry. His latest is The Journey to Kailash, Norlana Books, 2008. About 200 or so poems appear in venues like Asimov's Science Fiction, The Pedestal Magazine, Nebula Awards Showcase, The Best Horror of the Year, Goblin Fruit, Strange Horizons, Apex Magazine, and other places. He was president of the Science Fiction Poetry Association from 2004 to 2006, and also a three-time winner of the Risling Award. His fiction has appeared in Interzone, Weird Tales, Thaumatrope, Pseudopod, Podcastle, and various anthologies. You can hear more of Mike's poetry and flash fiction on Starship Sofa episodes number 55, 74, 80, 81, 88, 90, 91, and 96. He's also appeared as a guest on the Sofa Not Show number 24. So... If aliens came to Earth today, they wouldn't necessarily be much more advanced than we are, right? Having mastered interstellar travel. But what are their intentions? And how will we see them? The Ones Who Met Them by Anne K. Schwader The lawbringers set down their shining ships among the huts and mud of our young world, unearthly slender, splendid in their gifts, they spoke in parables that shone like pearls, summoning us to order, 
to the stars in all their systematic glory, who were we to face them? Slow of speech and art, we cowered in the shadows of our truth until those shadows answered, coyote's cry of shifting vistas, raven's clever wings, the set beast's desert-wise deceit, untried in such encounters, pale imagining pushed past its limits, our instructors fled and left us to our own stars, our free breath. The ones who met them first appeared in Mythic Delirium number 21, 2010, and is a so-called slant rhyme or near rhyme sonnet, which Anne says is the use of words which echo each other somehow but do not actually rhyme. Anne K. Schwader is a Wyoming native now living in Colorado. She's an active member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and the Horror Writers Association, as well as the Science Fiction Poetry Association and the Haiku Society of America. Her fiction and verse have received numerous honorable mentions in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror. She's the 2010 winner of the Reisling Award, presented by the SFPA, and has been nominated for the 2010 Bram Stoker Award and the 2011 Reisling Award. Schwader's most recent collection of science fiction poetry, Wild Hunt of the Stars, was published by Sam's Dot Publishing in 2010. Her SF Lovecraftian sonnet sequence, In the Yadith Time, published by Mythos Books, appeared in 2007. Her fiction and verse have been published in such magazines as Dark Wisdom, Weird Tales, Strange Horizons, Dreams and Nightmares, Mythic Delirium, and the Magazine of Speculative Poetry. Her mainstream haiku have recently appeared in Modern Haiku, Bottle Rockets, and Frog Pond, as well as online journals Heron's Nest and Simply Haiku. You can hear more of Anne's poetry on Starship Sofa episodes 60, 61, 69, and 70. Dennis Lane is a Brit who has spent the last 25 years traveling the world, finally settling in South Africa. He writes both poetry and prose, genre and non-genre, and his first poetry collection, Eight Million Stories, was published in 2010. Dennis is currently completing his first young adult novel, plus a Shakespearean steampunk story. Dennis has a much different view of extraterrestrials coming to Earth. Here he is reciting his own poetry. Into the Light by Dennis M. Lane Black dust, clogged throat, life spent in the dark. Wriggling maggots with pallid skin and red-rimmed eyes burrowing in the flesh of Mother Earth. My mother told me, when she could expel a word from mucus-filled lungs, that it was our lot. We, who had once roamed the surface with the sun on our faces, were the cogs, the batteries, the coiled springs of the machine. And I accepted it, for what else was there to do but nod and agree and dig where directed? When mother was dead, and I had fought my way into a foreman's position, where I could feel safe, I dreamed. I dreamed about the sun. I dreamed about the sky. I dreamed about the sea. And I cried. 
countless ancestors cried with me to see a proud people reduced to things, to components in a machine. During rest periods, what few there were, I talked with others who cried in the dark. Some were pitiful, the snivelling wrecks of a life in chains. But some, some were crying in frustration, crying in anger, and the anger grew. Until one day, a day when those who ruled were far away, a day when no ships patrolled the sky, a day when all that held us was our own fear and the few of our kind that were trusted with guns. On that day we stood up. Our chains were nooses, our spades guillotines. We stood up and we fought. With the overseers dead, or at least their bodies shuddering and jerking down the path towards death. And with the black dust washed away by bright scarlet, we stumbled out into the light. Our eyes full of wonder, we stared at the sky. Our guns held high, we roared defiance, and watched, and waited, and prepared for the ships, ships that we knew would return. You can find a range of Dennis's work, including some audio versions, at dennislanebooks.com, or read his blog at dmlbooks.wordpress.com. He can be found on Twitter as Dennis M. Lane. He has also recently joined the Starship Sofa team as a narrator and the host of Film Talk. An American Gothic Encounter of the Third Kind by Marge Simon Partly inspired by Grant Wood's American Gothic painting A farmer stands, pitchfork in hand, straight and stoic. Unblinking he stares at the horizon for a long time. His daughter steps out of the white frame house to water her geraniums. She notices he hasn't moved from the spot she last saw him. Worried, she comes over to touch his shoulder, a question in her eyes. She tries to see what he is thinking. She tries to know what he's seen. A pale blue ichor slides down the tines of his pitchfork, drips to his sleeve. But if she notices, she says nothing. She takes his arm and leads him inside. She places the fork next to the door. He never tells her what he has seen, but in the morning she finds plenty of meat in the freezer, enough to tide them through a long winter of strange northern lights. Marge Simon freelances as a writer, poet, and illustrator for genre and mainstream publications such as Nebula Awards 32, Strange Horizons, Flashquake, Flash Me Magazine, Dreams and Nightmare, The Pedestal Magazine, and Vestal Review. Marge is a former president of the Science Fiction Poetry Association. She now serves as editor of its bi-monthly journal Starline and edits the column Blood in Spades, Poet of the Dark Side, for the monthly newsletter of the Horror Writers Association. Marge has received the Bram Stoker Award and the Risling Award for her poetry and the James Award for her art. She has also illustrated five Bram Stoker Award collections. In addition to her solo work, 
Marge has written and published collaboratively with many other authors, including Bruce Boston, Charlie Jacob, Mary Terzillo, and Malcolm Dealey. So if we've been visited by aliens, they've taken over our planet, or we've taken over theirs, or something more cooperative, there will likely be individuals entering into relationships with one another. How would that work? Orion Rising by David Kopaska Merkel Waking up in bed with a lizard you don't know, scaled forearm with cool tenderness curled about your hip, you wonder... Where on earth did I party down last night? No hangover tells a tale of drinking to unreason, yet memory's slate is innocent of all postprandial chalk. The sun dances with the paper flowers on the wall, and you lie still a while, drinking with flared nostrils an elusive, not quite unpleasant scent, then detach yourself from the musky sandpaper skin to shower, dress, and pack up for the day. A note left in shaving cream upon the mirror reads, Thanks for everything. What else can I say? I'll be back by six, or maybe five. Until then, well, what's mine is yours. When I return, maybe we'll have some dinner out, and later mess around a bit at home. All day you imagine him basking in the patio's hot sun, tiny iridescent scales on bright ceramic tiles forming a pointless mosaic or undulating sleekly in the California surf, gulping down live fish, whole and wriggling. You squirm in your chair and tug at your scratchy suit. You long to be splashing with him in the salty azure sea. You dream some more and wonder why you can't remember repartee and giggles under a waxing moon, cool hands caressing hot and sweaty skin, or earlier shy introductions and sly innuendos at a sophisticated suburban club. The day misspent refiling, you hurry home an hour before your time, cursing the traffic snarling in the streets. At last, the Porsche pulls up smartly to the curb and you hop out, running up the carpet-covered steps. The key turns and clicks. You call, I'm home! But words fall dead in corners full of dust balls. The bed is made. The patio door stands open. Breathlessly, hands on frame, you peer out. Up at the sky where a white gull laughs harshly, down to the beach where two boys idly toss a ball. On the table, a salad waits, immaculately conceived, and on the mirror, a note. Don't sorrow at our parting, sweet mammal, but look for me tonight when Orion rises, and perhaps one day we'll meet again. It's dark, and stars in splendor fill with jewels the night, you lean against the firm reality of brick and sip. A chilled wine, trodden many years before in Spain, flows tingling to your throat. Orion rising catches at your heart. The wine forgotten, you drift out to the rail. Hands grip tensely, and a cool breeze flutters in your hair. Then all is still, but a faint murmur rumbling from the street, and the hot blood pounding in your ears. A light! A star coursing up through the night, straight for the nebula that forms Orion's sword. Even as you gasp, it dwindles and is gone, gone with the memories of trans-specific bliss. It all grows hazy as a fading dream, but as the precious fragments lose their substance, you know you've suffered thus before, 
countless times you've stared up at the stars, tears streaking your cheeks like liquid pearls, and longed just once to keep the memories of what? David Kopaska Merkel describes rocks and their holes for the state of Alabama. He is the editor and publisher of Dreams and Nightmares magazine, a print magazine of science fiction and fantasy poetry founded in 1986. He was, for six years, the editor of Starline, the journal of the Science Fiction Poetry Association. Nineteen previous chapbooks and hundreds of poems and short stories have been published in dozens of venues since the early 1980s. David lives in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, with one artist, one cat, one dog, and thousands of books. Orion Rising is from David's book Brush Fires, published in 2010 by Sam's Dot. His new ebook, Nursery Rhyme Noir, can be found at smashwords.com, and we've heard a couple of David's poems and a flash fiction piece on episodes 44, 56, and 105. You can find him on Twitter as David KM, where he tweets about nanofiction and politics, or read his blog at dreamsandnightmaresmagazine.blogspot.com. The Scent of Friendship by Elizabeth Barrett It is the scent, more than anything, that draws them together. The woman with spring water running in trickles down her pale skin, smelling of herbs and sunshine. The alien with sunlight shining on chitin, all bug eyes and thorny limbs, smelling of cinnamon and book dust. They did not expect to find each other here, where the spring meets the river. But here they are, dripping and intensely curious, reaching for the strangeness of each other's faces. It is nothing like the stories predicted. They don't want to kill each other, and the strange attraction between them is not romance, but friendship. They smell like lazy afternoons and good company, and the future beckons them with memories waiting to become. Oh, later there will be obligatory meetings and ambassadors and negotiations— all the necessary trappings of diplomacy, now that they each know the other species exists. But surely no one will miss them if, for just a few hours, they curl together on the velveteen moss, with her nose pressed to his shoulder, and his antennae framing her honeyed hair. Elizabeth Perret writes poetry, fiction, and non-fiction in the fields of speculative fiction, gender studies, and alternative spirituality. She has taught classes in speculative poetry and various sciences. Her book, Prismatica, Science Fiction Poetry Spanning the Spectrum, came out in December 2010. Her current study is cyber-funded creativity, including the popular poetry fishbowls on her blog, The Wordsmith's Forge. She has received many honors, including the Dwarf Stars Award and the Rose and Bay Award for Poetry in 2010, and six of her poems have been nominated for the Reisling Awards in the past six years. Her recent poetry publications include You Can't Hang This on the Wall in The Public Eye, Seasons of Power in The Lorelei Signal, Other Tongues in Linger Fiction. Your Alien Bride by Mary A. Terzillo The Courtship your eyes are so beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry, are those your kidneys? The proposal. We can live on my planet, or Earth, or in between. 
unless you need oxygen. The Bridal Shower Toast May you have many young, and may they be tender and flavorful. The Wedding You may taste the groom. The Wedding Night Ah! Oh! My love! Ah! Excuse me, are you in pain? What is that crawling across the bed? What? Your gestation period is sixty seconds. The divorce. Thank you. Delicious. End. Your alien bride appeared in Muse, January two thousand eleven. Mary Terzillo's nebula-winning story *Mars Is No Place for Children* and her novel *An Old-Fashioned Martian Girl*, *Analog*, *July* and *November* two thousand and four have been selected as recreational reading on the International Space Station. Her poetry and fiction appears in New Verse News, Asimov's, Astropoetica, Interzone, Stone-Telling, Starline, Strange Horizons, Goblin Fruit, and anthologies and magazines in the U.S., Great Britain, Japan, Italy, Germany, and the Czech Republic. Look for her work coming out in Asimov's, plus an authorized Philip Jose Farmer sequel story, The Beast Erect, in the worlds of Philip Jose Farmer too, from Meteor Press, 2011. Visit her website at maryterzillo.com or find her on Facebook. And when we are finally ready to take to the stars more regularly, and farther afield than the moon or Mars, what happens then? Rich Magahiz's poem is a sequence of linked haiku of sorts, the closest form being the Japanese renga. It has a sort of antiphonal structure based around a color palette. Your Color Palette, 2011, by Rich Magahiz. Honeysuckle. Crack, crack, the geologist hammer speaks. Coral Rose. Unnamed satellite dim behind ring plane. Peapod. 1830 mess, squeezed, not tasted. Beeswax, patch of sand buried where she was stricken. Silver peony, biolab console upset, stray wiring harness. Russet, twelve souls to aphelion, a foobar beacon. Regatta, annunciators strobe the space between breaths. Blue curaçao, rising from barren wastes to call it contact. Lavender, the crystals on the faceplate, comrade, and seer. Silver cloud, ignition to deny the horror. A link to the poem on Rich's website, where you can see the colors themselves, along with a link to provide context, can be found in the show notes. Rich Magahiz used to be a scientist, but has since turned engineer, working for a small tech company. His specialty as a poet is in writing sci-fi coup and related forms, which have been published at places such as Sci-Fi Quest, Abyss and Apex, and Dreams and Nightmares. One of his poems is up for Riesling this year. Lawrence Santoro is a well-known fixture on Starship Sofa. We know him well as an author and a narrator. Larry has worked as a theater manager and dramaturge, he was story supervisor and associate producer of the TV series Hide and Seek. 
His novella, God Screamed and Screamed, Then I Ate Him, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award in 2001. His first novel, Just North of Nowhere, was published in 2007 and will be available as an e-book around June 2011. His short fiction collection, Drink for the Thirst to Come, published by Silver Thought Press, is also coming out in June. Today you'll hear him recite his own poem. Down by Lawrence Santoro This is not as this was meant to be. Engines stop, check. Math's going. Gone, check. Zero, delta, V, and ozone whiff and crackle. We're venting. A long exhalation, a sigh, and an end. And at that end, what? One breath? Not one other. Check. We slip the bounds of asymptotes and tangents, my old tin can pal. We parabolized our ellipses, you and I, and lie now on the downside of hyperboli. <laughs> A joke. That ticking, where? Uh, just your skin shedding distance, <laughs> cooling, unequal shrinkage, couplings, uncoupling. <laughs> it's another joke. It's science, pal, and tranquility seeping among the facts around the heat death of this small universe. Only that, nothing more. The hiss, faint, fainter. Decompression? Ticking in a different meter now. And pain? <laughs> no pain. Check. Another joke. Light, lights, winking, concussive lingering on the optic nerves, or just electrics far from home. Now take the temperature. Feel the world outside. No instruments but the eldest, fingers, flesh, to touch your wall and weigh the chill of night of time. Oh, what nights, what days, what winds and colors, what forever lies beyond. They'll never know, back home. Never see the light of here, smell its skies, never taste this world, not like you and I. No. From us they won't, they will not, not from us, no, never, check. This is not how you were meant to be. Walls and deck tipped and tumbled, topsied. The blood, my blood, tells it so. My inner ear whispers wrong, wrong, so wrong. Such ancient things, the blood and ear, the fluid of earth flowing in earth's meat, the blood pools in a cave of bone and measures attitude, pitch, and yaw, and that old hug, gravity again, but slight, a lesser thing, no strain, one-third G. That's how it feels, the pull still there, yet two-thirds gone. I lie against your metal skin and feel the world beyond. Still, blood pools in bodies as still as ours. We've rarely been so still, you and I. After how many billion miles of going, now still, feeling still, and still no pain. <laughs> pain, 
<laughs> a joke, a thing of yesterday, yester-hour, minute, and tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow is a distant land, more impossible than home. No, pain is earth, pain is done, gone, check. This is now, and not how it was meant to be, this thing, you craft of metal, dreams and maths, soul of art and skill of earth refined and fires, wait in your composite guts below, you, my metal womb, my island world, you were to have stood so, so tall and just, poised just so, waiting, beacon home shelter, for just a while, then at the moment, designated, your swift fire would lick this soil strange no more for our having touched and walked upon it, and rise swiftly, moving things again, us, and kicked us home. We had the stuff of stars. We were distant scholars, you and I. And now, now our potential fire deliquesces, a finite venting of forever— and shamble-shamed we lie defeated, beyond repair, you and I, and touching you once more, feeling distant night beyond your skin, I wonder what stranger's eyes will some day see, in what spectra, color, apprehend this little pile of earth. And worse... What questions will we pose, us, the remnants of the mother, the taste, the sense of home? And at last I wonder, what wonders, and what wonders will we inspire, and what strange yearnings birth? On Discovery of a Habitable World by Mike Allen In a pink sea haze, beneath the rumbling of the waves, life flowers. Velvet tendrils weave vast nests of spun glass. Neon forms flow through the effervescence, sparkling among spires of molten sand. A dull titanium moon, new to these heavens, hovering in the sky above shimmering cirrus clouds, our ship casts out bright satellites that sound the ocean floor, that swallow and digest molecules, transmitting back the tests. We can land, breathe, live here, they say, and build continents to suit us. Within a lead-lined room, center of this metal bubble, a pocket of air in space, voices rise in angry disharmony, each contested word leaves our synthetic atmosphere a little more unbreathable. Will we bring new life to this world, or leave it dead? Beneath the tranquil shadows, unaware, unasked, cities of spun glass sway with the currents of the sea. That does it for the poetry on First Contact. In the world of genre poetry, there are a few items of news. The Stoker final ballot for superior achievement in a poetry collection has been announced. Dark Matters by Bruce Boston, Bad Moon Books. Wild Hunt of the Stars by Anne K. Schwader, Sam's Dot. 
Diary of a Gentleman Diabolist by Robin Spriggs, Anomalous Books, and Vicious Romantic by Rath James White, Bandersnatch Books. The awards will be presented on June 18, 2011. The Reisling Award candidates have been posted on the Science Fiction Poetry Association website at sfpoetry.com. The award is presented at ReaderCom 22 in Burlington, Maryland, July 14th through the 17th, 2011. Thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the poetry. Next month, we're coming home. That's the theme for June's collection of poetry. Please send your genre poetry submissions to me at divadiane at web.de. Diane, what can I say? Thank you so much. And did you hear that Mr. Young, Young, Mr. Larry Santoro's little poem in there as well? We got Larry later on in the show. All links to what Diane was talking about there is on the front of the website, and there is loads of links, so if you're interested in anything, do pop over to the front of the website. Next up, it is part two of Michael Moorcock's The Black Petals. It is narrated, as you know, by Peter Caval, a fantastic narrator. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Black Petals, an Elric story, by Michael Moorcock, read by Peter Cavell. In chapters one and two, Prince Elric of Melnabone and his companion Moonglum arrived in Nasiatiki in search of a plant called the Noibuluscus, or black anemone. Legend told that this plant, said to bloom only once every thousand years, could cure the symptoms of the deadly form of albinism from which Elric suffered. They met with a local doctor, Nashatak Squet, and discovered that they were not the only party in search of the Noibeluscus. Tylus Creek, king of the Oit, had recently made the treacherous journey upriver to the ruined city of Sum, seeking the flower, and had not returned. The Oit king's twin daughters were currently in Nasiatiki, trying to raise troops to go in search of their father. On the advice of Dr. Nashatak Squet, Elric and Moonglum sought an audience with the Republican Council. Upon arriving at the council house, they met the princesses Semlidaor and Nahuadwar, and the other members of their party, their countryman Duke Origino, the young Horrid Mevza, and Divimar, Elric's cousin, who still held him responsible for the tragedy which had struck their nation some time ago. Divimar was also the only survivor of the Oit King's expedition to Sum, and had lost his entire company of mercenaries in a battle with the savage, dwarfish creatures who currently occupied the city. Elric and Moonglum offered their assistance, at least until they reached the city of Sum, and the princesses accepted. Plans were made to set out the next morning. Chapter 3 Upriver Elric and a grumbling Moonglum arrived at the river dock in the cool air of early morning, when dew brightened every leaf and gaudy piece of wood. Cocks still crowed, and the languid smoke of breakfast fires rose from a thousand chimneys. Carrying a long bundle under his arm, Elric paused in surprise, seeing five figures standing near a big single-masted, scarlet-painted boat, anchored between several much larger inland barges, which, they had been told, traded between Nesiatiki and the interior cities beyond Sum. 
Normally, Soom was easily avoided, the river captains had said, but their traffic had stopped since news of the gathering savages had come. Now, said the landlord, only fools would risk the journey, or those whose greed outstripped their common sense. When Elric asked him, why greed, he replied with some old familiar tale of lost treasure. The people waiting to go aboard the vessel, whose only shelter was a small deckhouse set amidships, were Divam Mar, wearing the formal light battle armor of the Dragonmaster. Duke Origino had intricately carved wooden armor, which made his body bulky and seemed cleverly designed to protect the wearer from arrows and yet keep him afloat in water. The counselor's son, Horrid Mevza, had equipped himself in a coat of light brass mail and an elegant conical helmet. To Elric's mild surprise, the two princesses were also present. Their armor was wooden, like their countryman's. Elric greeted them with a bow. Princess Nahuadwar met his gaze with that same almost mocking directness, while her sister dropped her gaze and seemed almost to blush. They greeted each other, and, at a signal from Divamar, who led by common consent, began to cross the narrow, bouncing gangplank from quay to boat. "'We are grateful for your company, Prince Elric,' said Princess Semlidor as they boarded. "'We are at your disposal until we reach Sum,' he replied, "'and from then until the moon is full. Then we have our own business to follow.' She looked curiously up at him, clearly restraining herself from asking him any further questions. The tide and wind were in their favor. Within moments, Horrid Mevza had untied the boat, and they were carried by the current towards the center. As the women watched, the men unshipped oars and set the single sail, following the tide while it ran upstream. Soon they had rounded a curve, and the city was lost from sight behind a curtain of lush palms and thick foliage. The rowing grew harder. The familiar stink of the forest almost clogged their lungs. The air filled with the calls of myriad birds and all the grunts, barks, and bellows of the diurnal jungle. The journey to Sum would take several days. None showed the same impatience to reach the city as Divimar, whose eyes never lost their haunted quality and rarely looked directly at Elric. The titular emperor of Melnabone felt an equal discomfort, though for opposite reasons. Divimar hated him for the doom he had brought to Imrir, a hatred Elric also felt, yet the Dragonmaster still knew respect for a name and lineage which had ruled the Bright Empire for ten thousand years. Divimar had no Furn to command, and was by nature laconic, when not speaking to his dragons. Furn and Melnabonians, it was said, had once been of the same race, in a time before time began, and still spoke the same language but the dragons needed decades of sleep to restore their energy and their powerful venom. Almost all the dragons had been used in Imrir's defense, destroying the invaders even as they fled with their booty, and none remained for a master to command. This, Elric knew, was a further source of Divimar's frustration. The dragons slept in their deep caves, beneath the ruins of the city. The surviving dragonmasters, Elric among them, yearned for the moment when they would begin to wake again. The very things which had once bound Elric to his cousin were those which kept them apart. He noticed that Divimar also tended to keep his distance from the others, as if he in turn considered himself guilty of betraying those he had first led to Sum. In contrast, Duke Origino and Horrid Mevza seemed positively loquacious, talking almost to take their minds off the dangers ahead. Elric and Moonglum sat in the stern, 
taking the tiller whenever possible, and the two women, when not doing their share of the steering, sat near them. Princess Semlidor, as she became used to the company, seemed direct and open compared to her twin, who was full of smoldering secret humor, and enjoyed baiting the men whenever the opportunity came to her. At noon of the third day, as they lunched off local meats, breads, and wine, Princess Nahuadwar turned her hard, sardonic stare on Elric. "'A question I have been meaning to ask for some time, my lord emperor.' "'Lady?' "'I wonder what it is that brings so many exiles from the Dragon Isle to these shores.' Elric shrugged. As was common, Moonglum spoke for him. "'I would imagine they need employment, my lady, and soldiering is the thing they know best. Now they have no empire to defend.' "'But the women? Are they soldiers, too?' At this, Divimar growled. "'There are few women. The Reavers either slew them or took them as prizes. Then—' He lowered his eyes. "'Then our dragons pursued the Reaver ships.' "'And?' She genuinely did not know the answer. Divimar turned away. "'They died aboard those ships,' said Moonglum. Then Elric spoke. "'My cousin would want you to know that it was as a result of my betrayal.' They had sworn they would take only inanimate treasure. Perhaps we were all betrayed one way or another that day. Instinctively, his hand had gone to his black sword, Stormbringer, so tightly bound to its scabbard. We are from the Oit, as you know, and have no direct experience of events surrounding your nation's sudden fall, but I heard a noblewoman, was there not, to whom one of your princes was betrothed? I seem to recall a tale— "'I doubt it's a tale my lord the Emperor would care to hear retold,' interrupted Divimar bitterly. And Elric stood up suddenly, finding some work in the bow of the boat. In spite of Moonglum's warning glance, Princess Nahuadwar called after him, "'There's a sword involved in that story too, my lord.' He sighed, his eyes clouding as he drew his brows together. "'Lady, you'll have heard no doubt that my betrothed died by my own sword.' Is that why you keep it so thoroughly bound? With slender fingers, she gestured towards Stormbringer. Oh, tis best you ask no more questions concerning this sword, your highness. He pretended further interest in the boat's equipment. On both distant banks of the river, under the blaze of the noonday sun, the dark jungle moved slowly by. Indeed, it is in none of our interests for me to release this sword." Inquiringly, she looked up directly into his own ruby eyes. Then why carry it? To placate my own patron, I suppose. His returning gaze was as direct as her own. Be warned, lady. Few have ever been glad to have such questions fully answered. Nahuadwar made to speak again. Then her twin called from where she sat in the prow. Semlidor pointed to their left, to a long sandbar on which several large crocodiles basked. Among them was an object reflecting the sun, metal washed by the river and polished by the sand, a large piece of armor. As they drew nearer, Moonglum recognized it as a breastplate of Melnabonian workmanship, similar to that worn by Divimar. The two kinsmen turned away, frowning. "'Was it here?' Princess Semlidor's voice was sympathetic. Divimar shook his head. "'Further upstream.' It must have been dragged down this far by the current, and perhaps by those reptiles. He lifted his head and stared into the middle distance. Duke Origino murmured, 
I never knew a people so racked by guilt, and yet which never knew a moment's self-doubt before their diaspora. He spoke ostensibly to an embarrassed horrid Mevza, who pretended to stare down into the water. For some little time the party sailed on in silence. The heat had caused the men to discard much of their armor. The sluggish water was thick with strange leaves, boughs, and exotic, bright-colored blossoms. The two women murmured together, but as evening came and the sun sat atop the silhouetted jungle, the atmosphere aboard became significantly more relaxed. Duke Origino and Horit Mevza fell into a political conversation. The notion of a republic was foreign to the Duke. He found it difficult to understand how such a thing functioned. He was used to the state embodied in the person of a king, reflecting and exemplifying his nation's virtues. A nation run by a set of institutions and elected officials seemed to him to be a strange, even sickly affair, no longer dependent on the virtue and honor of its hereditary leader, prey to the basest desires of people who would promise anything to an electorate in order to be placed in high office. The princesses speculated on the wildlife to be found in the jungles, and of the ancient, perhaps unhuman people who had built the city and ruled the land of Sum, occasionally asking Elric or Divimar for their opinion. The savages, though ugly and stunted, seemed human enough to me, Divimar said. The women spoke of their father, who had hired the Melnibonians. Tylus Creek had been obsessed with learning Sum's secrets, they said. He was convinced the city had been the center of a wise civilization almost as old as Melnabone. Its treasure might have been knowledge or gold, he had not known from his reading. It might even have been the Black Flower, said to confer power on its kings. Ancient manuscripts had spoken of it in mysterious terms. Whatever form it took, that treasure could have revived his own nation's fortunes. The Oit had suffered a great plague— taking a huge proportion of the population, making it weak and liable to be preyed upon by stronger neighbors. "'My father was obsessed with the stories he had heard of Sum,' said Semlidor. "'He believed the older civilization would save ours. We belong to a race of scholars, and it is our wisdom alone which has kept the worst predators at bay, even though we lost a number of our vassal states. Our war engines are sophisticated, our magic, too, is feared.' We have made none of the alliances which, by all accounts, made ancient Melnabone great. We believed that the crisis was over, that we had been able to resist the worst of the threats. There were other plans in place which did not depend upon discovering the secrets of Sum, but his curiosity, we suspect, began to drive him more than any immediate danger. You say he was a botanist also? Horid Mevza asked. Perhaps this wealth he coveted was in the nature of rare spices. Our own city's fortunes were based upon the spice trade. Perhaps. Princess Nahuadoar was looking at Elric, as if to discover his reaction. Her own expression indicated that she did not welcome this suggestion. Night fell for the third time since they had left Nasiatiki. The men drew an awning over the deckhouse and set up nets against the biting insects, tying up to a large tree trunk wedged where the river curved and the current ran slowly. They all slept soundly, save for the albino, whose occasional grunts and mutterings reminded Moonglum that his friends still relived those events surrounding the fall of that great capital. He had rarely slept in peace since the death of Cimmeril, his betrothed. Dawn came again, and they rode on upstream. 
By noon, the sun was a throbbing, glaring eye, gazing pitilessly down on them as they sweated to force their course on a river grown increasingly difficult to navigate, whose bends twisted and snaked, narrowing then widening unpredictably at every turn. Divamar warned them not to drag their hands in the water, now seething with poisonous reptiles and giant cephalopods, and all are hungry for our flesh or blood or both. As he spoke, to illustrate his warning... A great coiling serpent leapt from the water to snap at a bird skimming the surface in pursuit of a giant dragonfly. Moonglum murmured to his friend, What could have possessed the Oit King to leave his country and his daughters and mount an expedition here? You, at least, have a far better reason for seeking Soom. Somehow, they survived yet another day and night, until at last Divamar stood up in the boat to point at something the color of dried blood stretching out in the water. Clearly of sentient manufacture, it had the appearance of a ruined mole, of worn red sandstone with rusted iron rings still set into slabs casting black shadows on thick, unpleasant water. Moonglum, half certain that intelligent eyes were watching them from the dark green jungle depths, made to draw one of his curved swords from his sheath. At any moment an arrow or spear would come flashing out of the shadows and plant itself deep in soft flesh. Then a worse thought came to him. What if they want us alive? For what? For bait? In spite of all his experience, he caught himself shuddering. Now he wondered about more sinister projectiles. A net, perhaps? Or a poisoned dart? Pulling on his armor, Divimar said, If they act as they did before, they'll wait until we reach the city proper, until there is little chance of escape to the river. He turned to Elric. Others beside me have noticed how well secured that blade is, cousin. It might be wise to have it more immediately to hand. Elric reached down and picked up the long bundle he had brought aboard. He raised his eyebrows. You would risk that? No choice is palatable, but having experienced what these savages are capable of, I'd take my chances with Stormbringer, assuming you plan to remain on our side. This further stab at his conscience froze Elric's face into a familiar expression of hauteur. Why, cousin, would you trust my word, even if I gave it? Buckling and nodding, Divimar peered into the forest. Cousin, I trust nothing, but at least I know you. With Moonglum at the tiller, he took an oar and, in unison with his kinsmen, began to row towards the overgrown quay, murmuring, it was no idea of mine to bring women here, but I was allowed no say in the matter. I understand why they want to find their father, but he is a fool. Haste and stupidity led us to that doom. Some of my own men might somehow have survived. I hope to save them. But you, Elric, what do you really seek here? I seek to free myself from the weakness which made Yerkun believe he could usurp my power and put his sister, my cousin, into a trance. Divimar nodded, adding, "'Which led you to rely upon the stolen souls its black sword harvests.' Elric sighed, "'The Noibeluscus is the five-fingered flower whose petals are the color of jet. It grows only in Sum. They say Sum's soldiers drank its distilled essence, and thus imposed their authority upon the world.' "'And do you recall the rest of that story?' his cousin asked. "'There are many versions.' Most agree that the Black Flower poisoned the people of Sum, so that they relied upon it merely to survive. I should fear that, 
Elric smiled more broadly than he had done for many years. I should fear reliance upon a potion rather than upon a sword? His cousin shrugged. He could think of no suitable answer. Chapter 4 Soom Slowly, the thick foliage parted to the careful blades of the seven oddly matched men and women, each of whom carried a small, brass-studded shield. Duke Origino exclaimed at what they saw. He was still the only one of the company not apparently affected by the atmosphere of danger. Elric unwrapped the long, simple, Jarkorian blade he had carried aboard, a thoroughly practical weapon. Divimar was disappointed. I would have preferred a bow or two, or perhaps a javelin. If attacked from cover at a distance, they would be unable to reply. Gods, what minds designed such architecture? Moonglum peered ahead. Young Horrid Mevza gasped. Not human, whatever they say. Now I truly believe the stories are true, and these buildings were raised even before fabled Melnabone thrived. He looked to Elric as if for confirmation. Elric's expression had become sardonic at this reference to the fabulous nature of his homeland. Carrying slender scimitars like those of the Fukai pirates Elric had fought when employed by Ilmior and sea lords, the women stepped onto a weed-grown pavement through which old trees now pushed up trunks, some grown almost as high as the great red ziggurats which stretched before them, carved with bizarre figures and shapes. Elric had some dim memory of this place. Perhaps he had visited it on one of his dream quests as a youth, but the association was in no way pleasant. On instinct, he turned suddenly to look backward. He saw nothing but the jungle through which, as silently as possible, they had trekked for the past few hours. Duke Origino lowered his own longsword and rested his gauntleted hand on the haft of a busily engraved battle-axe of silver-chased steel, more commonly associated with cavalry fighting. He allowed a look of skepticism to spread across his bearded face, and he shook back his head to rid it of the damp locks obscuring his vision. Divimar pointed a slender finger towards the center of the ruined city and its crumbling pyramids. That's where we were ambushed, as we entered yonder square overlooked by that ugly building, palace, temple, whatever it is. We had made too much noise, and I think we were followed. You say you could not count them? A fair-sized tribe? Princess Semlidor pushed golden hair back from her damp forehead. A party of perhaps a hundred. With his soft doeskin boot, Divimar indicated fairly fresh bloodstains on the paving. Perhaps a few more. We dispatched half that number. Before you let them take you prisoner? said Princess Nahuadwar sharply. Divimar bridled. I am a hired mercenary, madam. We followed the king's commands. To do what? The question was rhetorical. Elric suspected she had heard the answer before. As I said, lady, your father was anxious to reach that sandstone pyramid there, the one they've made some crude attempt to restore. He called it a palace, but I think it's some kind of temple. He took the majority of my men forward, and left me to protect the rear with some Lormirian archers, a few lancers and my chief lieutenant, Agric Ingrikson. The last we saw of the king, he had disappeared into the palace. We fought off the savages for several hours until they fell back. Then we moved to try to rejoin the king and the rest of our men. We got as far as yonder house, the one with the walls still intact. A trap. They were waiting for us inside, fresh warriors. I saw half my men butchered. Most of us were overwhelmed. 
Then we thought we saw a way free. We got almost to the river before they began shooting at us. We carried the wounded with us into the river. I now think they intended to let us go, maybe as a warning to any other expedition. That is why I think we have not been attacked. They believe no one else will dare come to Sum. Or they have moved deeper into the jungle, said Moonglum, taking their prisoners with them. Or they have completed their business in Sum and returned to their tribal homeland further upriver, suggested Duke Origino. I agree, it is most likely they would have attacked us by now if they were still in the city. Should we try to follow them? Horid Mevza did his best to hide his disquiet. You may do as you please, replied Elric. My business is in Sum. We need all the swords we can muster, Princess Nahuadwar glared at him. Indeed, my lady, Elric acknowledged, but we agreed to lend you our aid until Sum and the rising of the full moon. There is some hope that the Melnabonians are still alive, said Divimar softly. And I hope to be again at their disposal once the moon is risen, said Elric, a matter of hours. He reached into his pouch and drew out the map he had bought in Thakora. Beside what the king had called a palace was some kind of garden, perhaps the Lunarium, which Elric's people had called a night garden, judging by the iconography on the map. The Noibeluscus appeared to have a religious function. Perhaps the black flowers had grown there. While the others debated, he marked out the site in his mind. Timing was important. The flower had to be picked at the moment of its blooming. He and Moongla moved away from the others. This is where I guess the site to be. They had gone only a few steps when the brooding air was cut by a terrible sound, a high-pitched wail of agony which was suddenly cut off. The others stopped talking and listened carefully. Elric turned, questioning, into a sickening silence. It came from inside, Moonglum said. Duke Origino began to cross the square at a run, heading for the huge pyramid, the women behind him. And then, from out of a dark, ragged hole in the pyramid's wall, a scarlet figure came stumbling. Even Elric, versed in the refined tortures of his people, could not disguise his horror. The figure might once have been a naked man. How it continued to move, Elric could not guess, for every inch of skin had been flayed from scalp to feet. The red mouth moved, the throat gurgled with blood. Blue eyes, from which the lids had been removed, stared blindly before it. Every moment must have been a century of agony, as it raised bloody hands before it, groping for unseen help. The party stood stock still as the flayed man approached. He screamed, leaving a trail of thick strings of blood behind him. Moonglum ran forward with the intention of helping the man. Instantly an arrow thrummed from somewhere and took him in the shoulder. He fell to his knees, an almost ludicrous expression of surprise on his face, but the arrow had failed to penetrate his mail, and dropped to the ground even as he raised his hand towards it. He stood up sheepishly, drawing his long curved sword. Form a square! Elric, Moonglum, and Divamar took charge, showing the others how to raise their small shields to protect their faces and upper bodies. Moonglum ducked and picked up the long barbed arrow, darting a look of inquiry at Divamar. He nodded, confirming that it was the same kind of shaft which had killed so many of his men. Then a whole rain of arrows came from the same direction, thudding into their shields. I suspect they don't plan to take casualties or seek confrontation, said Moonglum. Elric nodded. They might even have released that flayed prisoner to encourage retreat. Moonglum was puzzled. Why, when they clearly outnumber us, would they avoid conflict? 
Still screaming, the flayed man stumbled on. Use the black sword, Elric! Use it now! cried Divimar. Everything in the albino told him to do as his cousin demanded, yet still he resisted. His hand fell to the scabbarded blade. No! cried Moonglum. Then he murmured, At least, not yet. Divimar made to go after the flayed man. Elric stopped him. No one can follow him. If we break ranks, we are dead. Then use the damned sword! Instead, Elric reached down and pulled a spear from his shield. Now he had a more useful weapon. Stormbringer stirred against his thigh. He heard it murmur, but he deafened himself to its voice, to the tones of Arioch, Duke of Chaos, urging him to do as Divimar demanded. They were looking to him for leadership, even as the bloody figure, still intermittently screaming, disappeared into a jungle, opening like a maw to swallow him. Duke Origino stood trembling, his eyes blank, maybe mad. The stink of the skinned man's bloody flesh was in their nostrils. Seeking the best cover, Elric made the small party fall back towards the pyramid and the high-walled annex from which the man had come. He had his own motives for investigating the compound. As they crowded in, one of the women screamed, and the lad fell back retching. Princess Semlidor turned her head away, but her twin sister, pushing black hair from her face, forced herself to stare down at the blood-soaked ground. Laid out on it, like a suit of clothes, was the flayed man's skin, neatly separated from the body by an expert hand, including the hair of the head and the man's private parts. The operation would have taken a long time. Looking at the pelt, they imagined the victim's horror and pain. But Elric saw something else, pushing its way through the dark mud created by the man's blood and urine. He barely resisted falling to his knees and staring at the small, dark chute, exactly the same as the one he had seen in a dozen grimoires and herbals. The Neubeluscus, the Black Anemone. So your instincts were right. Moonglum spoke so softly only Elric could hear him. They stood in Sum's ancient lunarium. From the histories and geographies Elric had read, he had expected something larger. Clearly the compound, now roofless, had been roofed in crystal, perhaps even a great prism concentrating the moon's rays, used to grow the sacred flower, which blossomed once every hundred years, and would bloom tonight, if the scrolls and books he had consulted told the truth. Then Elric was struck by a realization— the arrival of the savages was no coincidence. The man's flaying, the draining of his fluids into the ground was a ritual. Those degenerates, doubtless descendants of ancient Sumians, were here to witness the black flowers blooming. The shoot was growing before his eyes, a tightly closed bud surrounded by black, spiky leaves. Moonglum reached his hand towards it, but his friend stopped him. The Neubeluscus must be plucked at the optimum moment. We must wait until the moon is full. It's not even twilight. We must somehow hold out against the savages until midnight. He had waited so many months, he could feel the last of his strength ebbing out of him. He thought only of his own needs. Divimar stared at his cousin in contempt. The princesses, too, knew what they had found, for their father had spoken of it, hoped to find it. Perhaps the Neubeluscus was the treasure their father sought. Even Moonglum was troubled. Elric cared nothing for what any of them thought. At last, he need no longer depend either on herbs or hellsword. This, in turn, freed him from Arioch, from all those hidden pacts which had led, in his mind at least, to the death of Cimmeril. 
he knew a deep satisfaction. Everything he had hoped for was coming true. After tonight, his dependence on the supernatural would be over. All he had to do was survive. We're heavily outnumbered, Elric, Moonglum was reminding him. We're trapped. This place can be readily defended, Elric replied. The only entrances are that gap in the wall through which we came and that smaller opening. He pointed to a small, square, regular opening in the main structure of the Great Pyramid itself. It seems to be some sort of outlet, perhaps for water, used in the original construction. The battle leader he was trained to be, he positioned Divamar and Duke Origino at the small, regular opening. The others were told to watch for activity beyond the wall. Any attackers could only come through one at a time. The walls themselves were too high to permit spears or arrows to be aimed at them. When Elric turned to Princess Nahuadoar to explain this, she looked directly into his eyes and said firmly, "'We are here to rescue my father, Prince Elric!' "'And to save any of my men who survive,' Divimar added, peering down into the square opening and then leaning to look up, as it was, indeed, some kind of sluice from above. "'If only we could calculate the enemy numbers, we'd be better able to determine our strategy.' Elric ignored them. He had already told them his purpose. While their mutual interests coincided, he would work with them. If they conflicted, he would have to concentrate on the black flowers blossoming.' Moonglum went to stare through the gap in the wall at the horizon. The sun was already setting. He had long since accepted that Elric was driven by his own needs, but he had thought there was another quality in his friend, something which might just possibly on occasions put the greater good above his own. He shook his head, trying to clear it. Then he had a new thought. What if the savages, who had already demonstrated their sophisticated strategies, did not want to frighten them from the city at all? Perhaps the party had been deliberately offered this route. He whirled, and as their eyes met, it was clear Elric shared the same suspicion. Elric cursed his desperation and need. Is there time now for a new strategy? Hadn't he already found what he had come to Sum to take? Why not do, however, what the mysterious tribesmen least expected, and attack the pyramid? Apart from himself, there were only two experienced soldiers amongst them. True, the women were brave and willing, even trained to arms to a degree, yet they were scarcely strong enough for an assault, not unless most of the defenders were already dead. Suddenly, a shout came from above. Elric could not see who it was, but Horrid Mevza, furthest away from the main wall, looked up, and Princess Samlidor exclaimed, "'Father! We are here to save you!' A distant voice replied, "'Fools! Now we are all doomed!' "'Get out of here while you can. "'You men have brought my daughters into danger.' "'He lives!' "'Princess Semlidor hardly listened to her father's words. "'Oh, thank Yenob, he lives!' "'She and her sister stared upward with radiant faces. "'Great king!' cried Duke Origino. "'If they speak a civilized tongue, "'tell them we'll pay any ransom they demand. "'Get out of that accursed compound if you can. "'Now! Get into the jungle!' They do not want our gold. They want our flesh. Ah! Father! Princess Nahuadar was beside herself with emotion. He's gone. They took him back. He's right. We can't stay here. Divimar feared more for his men than for the king. We must help them, Elric. Draw the sword. You are the greatest sorcerer in our history. You can help them. You owe them that. Moonglum said quietly, Elric, friend. 
You must. I am losing strength. It's almost gone. If... But he realized he could not continue as he had. Every instinct was against it. Cruel his people might be, but they had loyalty one to the other. The last of his herbs was gone. His only hope now was that he could live until the Noibeluscus bloomed. Even then there was no certainty. A spell of the kind they wished him to cast would drain any vitality left him. If the spell failed, would he be too weak, then, to help his countrymen? Could he do nothing while another victim was flayed alive? Yet he had vowed never to draw the black sword again. His cousin was yelling something at him. Beyond the tall red walls of the ruin, the blood-red sun was beginning to sink behind the dark jungle foliage. Twilight was coming. In a short while, the full moon would rise, and, if Elric's understanding was right, the black flower's petals would open and begin almost instantly to fall. At that point, they must be gathered. He must collect the seeds so he could grow fresh plants somewhere. Or was this red mud the only kind in which the plant would grow? Still, he hesitated. It would be worse than ironic if, only an hour or so before those petals opened, he lacked the energy to pick them. Elric! Do you not owe us something? Divimar's bared sword almost threatened his cousin. Do you want to see your remaining kin slain as, as that poor wretch? And he pointed to the skin laid out on the wet ground. Moonglum was silent, but it was clear he shared the Dragonmaster's opinion. Elric lowered his eyes. No, he said. From somewhere deep above came another prolonged and terrible scream. The albino drew a deep breath. His eyes stared as if into a vision. His lips began to move, silently forming the words of a tongue more ancient than that of Sum, more ancient than Melnabone's, words he had learned in a dream quest, long ago, sleeping upon the dream couches of Imrir, when he had forged a certain alliance. His mind began to travel out along the strange network of roads that had once taken him through the many dimensions of the multiverse. He lifted his head, his eyes now shining with an alien brightness, and he shouted a word which burst like a blaze of voices upon the agonized ears of all near him. Yet the others could not make sense of the word they heard. They did not recognize the name. Only Elric heard and recognized it, and it drained his life force from him even as it left his lips. Sasarash, he said. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Young Mr. Moorcox, and a big thank you to Peter Caval. Don't forget, look out for next week to the final and concluding episode, or see a part of The Black Petals by Michael Moorcock. Next we have, yes, that man that nearly bloody died on a few months ago, Mr. Larry Santuro. Larry, how are you doing, sir? I am doing very well, thanks, Tony. Now, I'm sure, Larry, I'm sure, you know, the last time you were on, had you not, was this not when you had your, your, your scare and you were in <laughs> bloody hospital and you'd a clot yeah. on the heart? Was that the last time we got together on for an interview? I think that was the last time we officially spoke. Yeah. Uh, I You're was still here. Because, <laughs> because of uh, two blood clots in my, or a blood clot in my leg that somehow broke loose and drifted up and separated into both parts of my lungs. And 
yeah, that was the last time we spoke. So that how was right how's, how's things going? How's things going for that then, Larry? Are, are you looking after yourself first off? Yeah. Uh, well, mm, as well as I can. Uh, I'm off the rat poison now. Uh, I, I was on this drug called warfarin for a while to keep my blood thin, but my doctor said I could go off of that. So I'm hoping that nothing reoccurs. Uh, Otherwise, you know, sadly, I am doing pretty much the same kind of things that I was before, <laughs> which means that I sit in front of a computer most of my life or wherever, and uh, that's that's it, which is well, the thing that's deadly. Well, you went pretty, in my eyes, or in kind of my world, you went pretty back to work pretty quickly for what I thought. Do you know what I mean? But I suppose that's, that's, is that a good thing for you, just to get back into the swing of things and just... Well, yeah, yeah. I, I went back. I think I was off work for about, I don't remember really, but it was about three weeks, I think. I would have milked that baby. <laughs> yeah, I know. I should have. But, but you know, we're here in the United States where if you've got a job, you really want to hang on to it and you don't want to twist fate's tail by... Uh, yeah, no, but, I mean, two you know, clots to the uh, lungs is a pretty, you know, three weeks back at the is. desk. It was that was, yes. I, You know, hats off to you. I kind of admire for that. A fantastic, but uh, a brave man, to be quite honest, to go through yeah. that. And, uh, you know, to, you. to show them pictures and everything in your bloody line there. God, what... <laughs> I also remember what a fright I I'm got. I'm shameless, am I not? I am shameless. <laughs> I just, it's, it's, it's that theatre background of mine when I would stand naked in front of everybody and and yeah it's it's odd it's odd when i was a kid i was i i wouldn't even go out the door of my house with a t-shirt on i had to be like fully dressed and uh i i can remember friends of mine banging on the back door and my mother saying pete's outside will you go down and talk to him i am not dressed would i say i i have to put my shirt and then i have to put on my etc you know so uh not no more uh, my god it was well, all no it was actually all the wind. actually <laughs> actually still um the theater part of me was a way that i could do things in the guise of other people i would like dress up i i i, I literally have been naked on the stage and that didn't bother me but to appear with my buttons unbuttoned uh in public as Larry Santoro would have been unthinkable. So uh, it's, it's an odd thing. <laughs> Theater lets us do really strange, strange things, things because that's, yes. it's not me. It's not me. It's the character, you know? So, okay. But All right. news is though, Larry, you've got, <laughs> when I say a new book, are you re-releasing just North of Nowhere? Yes. Uh, when the first, it came out originally in 2007, and was the product of number of years' work. I, I was doing other things in the meantime, but I was gradually assembling this, which I only kind of... At, I came late to the understanding that what I was doing was a book. I was writing stories that were all set in the same place with the same characters, uh, all of which, the, all the stories were intertwined one with the other. And then somebody at one point suggested, well, you know, this is really a book. Why don't you just put it together and publish it? Well, oh, yeah, I guess it is, thought I. Uh and I did. One of them was a story that won, that got me my first Bram Stoker nomination uh, a 
the chapter in the book is now called, uh, oh, what's the name of it? Uh, uh, God screamed and screamed, then I ate him. That's uh, a fantastic title. <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody thought. It didn't win the uh, award, but it, it did get me. I was up there with, I think, the, the nominees that year in the category that was in long fiction were Stephen King, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, uh, myself, uh, and there, there was a, th- there was a third one. Oh, a fourth one. I mean, uh, uh, Steve and Melanie Tem, uh, and uh, actually Steve and Melanie won, and really deserved to because they, they had a great, they had a great piece. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The the book got put together and was published in 2007, and because of space constraints, uh, we had to cut out about 10,000 words from the final released uh, book. Um, in other words, if the book had gone out at the size it was, it would have jumped it up to another page signature and it would have cost another, it cost the the buyer another, I don't know, five bucks or something like that. And they felt that was too expensive. So I pulled out couple of chapters here and then i pulled out another chapter that i was hoping to get in but at the last minute everybody said well if we're going to have to cut we might as well cut things that haven't actually been fully completed yet so uh that thing went out and they're all back now um i just did you always want to get them back in and and get it out again well for (laughs) this is embarrassing uh in the first published uh version of the book in 2007 there was one story that was actually uh, one part of the, the the narrative that was actually incomplete as as it was published uh it somehow escaped everybody's attention that a whole section of this thing was missing it works well without it i mean it, it's easy to overlook it but basically what happened was i sent the wrong piece to the publisher and he read it and said, well, that makes sense, and published it. And it came back to me to read uh, the galleys, and I was reading it, and I somehow missed it myself. And the proofreader here in Chicago who was working with me, a, a writer, fantastic writer named Martin Munt, uh, said, Larry, is that story finished? I mean, is that the way you want it? And I said, yes, yes, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, just, yeah, don't, don't bother me. <laughs> And when it came out, I, I was looking through the book, and I read this thing, and I said, oh, God. See, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the one thing, mind you, Larry, the way we do it with Lulu. We could have, you know, I could have just, D, don't yeah. get that changed. You know, within like an hour, it would have been changed. Yeah. Maybe not yeah. one person would have known where with you, you know, going down that route, it's just, well, that's it. I think Mar- Martin Munt and I were the only people that knew it. Uh, so uh, how, how could you, how could you miss that then? Just out- how could I, I don't know. I'm an idiot. What, what can I tell you, Tony? I'm, I'm a fool. <laughs> oh, uh, hey, Larry, I, honestly, I love you. You could put anything out of your work. I bloody love oh, it. Thank you, know you, thank so, you, thank so it's because I've seen, what I did see was though, because I'm a, I'm a big Kindle fan now, Larry. I trapped myself to a Kindle uh-huh. a couple, about two months ago. And honestly, Revelation Kindle, just because I used to have, you know, like like most people, I guess, that listens to the show, just oodles of shelf space filled with books, and then mm-hmm. it just that hasn't worked now. And like, see, <laughs> kids come <laughs> along, and rooms get, and I've got now yeah. 
me science fiction masterworks. That's all I've got in books. Everything else is, is gone. It's charity shops and everything like that. But now the yeah. Kindle's come along, and it's just like you can just fill it up and fill it up, and you know, books on tap, you know, and you can just yeah. get a book there and then. And now it is going on Kindle, isn't it? Well, eventually, yeah. It, right now, it's on Smashwords uh, for four ninety nine, uh, which will put it up onto. I don't know how these things are done. So I have a, a writer friend who's a, who's also a computer guy who's done all the coding and and prepared the manuscript for uploading to these various formats. Smashwords feeds its content to, I believe, iBooks. The, the Mac, uh, the Apple uh, store, uh, and Nook, which is Barnes & Noble in the States, and and a whole variety of other things. Kindle, I'm sending a separate file to, and it'll go up there probably next week. Uh, and likewise, there, there's somebody else that's getting a, another version of the same material. And, and, and they're all going up for four ninety nine. I'm sorry, what? I was just going to say, uh, will will it be available in the UK? Because I tell you why, there was, I forget the exact title, but it's a Jack McDivitt time travel story that I wanted. And mm-hmm. I, you just kind of get it in the UK in ebook form. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter if I, it's on Kindle, if it's on, uh, what what's it? I forget what it's called. I was a time travel story novel by Jack McDivin. I even emailed Jack and I said, Jack, have you got a copy? Just a word copy. I said, I'll pay you for that. And then I'll convert uh-huh. it myself because you can just, when you get a Kindle, you get like this email address where you can just send yeah. a file to and it converts it and puts it up. And he's, it, mm. as it happens, he says that the, the version he's got totally different from the, the kind of, I guess this is what happens when you use writers. You know, once it goes to the publisher, they have a look at it and change, you know, edit and change over and things like that. So he didn't have a, an up-to-date copy. So mm. it's just like so frustrating, you know, when you want sometimes to, to read a book on the well, Kindle. You uh, can. Now, let's so see. Make sure, make sure it's going in the UK. Uh, I know, for example, Robin, uh, Robin Bradshaw has bought a copy. She's, she's of course, in Canada, uh, Nova Scotia. Uh I, I think several other copies have been sold. Uh, Matthew Matthew Sanborn Smith has, I, I think, has got one. Uh, well, I'm going to hold couple, out. A couple of other people, but I, I, they store. should, as far as I understand, they should be available. But then my understanding is highly limited. I was going to say, well, said, understanding you, 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 you missed a giant. I am a fool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so. I really don't know. I I have to speak after we finish talking here. I have to get together with uh, Donnie Light, who's the writer who's putting all the coding together for this. And we had some issues with the original material when it went out uh, that had to be corrected. And that, I understand, is now corrected. So it'll go back. Uh, Well, yeah, the, the history of the history of just north of nowhere is an interesting one uh, and has caused problems today that, that didn't cause problems when the inked paper version came out. Uh, that book was written on, I think it's at Slate. least, well, <laughs> just about. It was written on four separate computers, uh, including three generations of Mac computers and uh, at least three different word processing programs. Uh, and then 
all of it was put together and sent out to the publisher who then published it with little or no problems. But now that it's going up as an ebook, all manner of strange hidden glitches are showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, text box problems, and there are no text box in it as far as I know. But Larry, honestly, I, I get exactly the same. And I get it with, you know, the like, say, I'm not saying old timers, but, you know, right as I kind of, you know, have went through this kind of transition, like yeah. yourself, you know, have yeah. been through all the different variations. A good example yeah. is Joe Haldeman. You'll get a story off Joe Haldeman, <laughs> and it's just like, your file format, you can't, you know, it was from the 90s, do you know what I mean? The early 80s, yeah, early, and yeah. you're trying to open well, it, and you're thinking, how did, how do you get this thing? Because you know in there, there's a great story, you know. Well, that's where Just North of Nowhere started in the 90s. So, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I started writing it back uh, when I was still in theater. Before, before I think I had written more than a few poems, uh, semi-professionally, uh, I... I was how it started. If you're interested in hearing this, oh yes, uh, the book got started while I was still in theater here in Chicago. I had a friend who suddenly vanished from the scene, and I got a phone call from her saying, "Hi, I'm in Minnesota. I bought a house up here. Can you come up and help me paint it?" And I thought, "Well, what? And leave show business?" But <laughs> At that time, I wasn't doing anything. I was at liberty, as they say. And I, uh, I, I, she sent me the train fare and said, I'll even pay you. And I, well, fine. So anyway, I, I got on the train. I went up to this little town in southern Minnesota, the name of which will remain a secret. And I fell in love with the place. And I painted her house, which she had bought for like $2,000 or some such ridiculous price like that she and her ex-boyfriend were up on a on a little road trip and they were passing through this beautiful little <clears throat> jewel box of a town it saw that there was an auction going on and she as a joke put in a bid of something like two thousand dollars and actually got the house uh which it turns out was originally owned by al capone's chauffeur who retired there with his African-American prostitute girlfriend and lived through the the 40s and 50s and then died, and then the house just stayed empty. Anyway, I fell in love with the town, and I just started taking notes to myself about some of the people in the town that that I would see. Uh, This guy who used to drive past every day on his bicycle with a radio attached to it. And I find he's, he's kind of the local town handyman who literally lives under a bridge out at the far end of town. And this old guy who used to hunt snakes when he was a kid, who was probably pushing a hundred at that point, who used to shuffle down the street every morning and go to the little cafe and people like that. And when I got back to Chicago, I started taking notes on the town and one of the notes actually turned into kind of a character sketch when i was teaching writing uh, at one point in my life uh i would tell people to start with a character sketch just put down on paper what you see of the person don't give me what you know of them what you think about them 
what you believe to be their story. Just give me the facts. They are so tall. They have such colored eyes. They wear this kind of clothing typically, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I was doing that. And I was suddenly finding that I was creating story material out of these people. Uh, and then I, I wrote the opening. Well, it's not the opening story in the book. It's about... It's about the fourth chapter in. I, I had this story that I featured some of the people I'd met in the town, but I changed, utterly changed, and uh, some other things. And I read it at this organization I was part of called Twilight Tales here in Chicago, alas, no longer with us. Uh, and it received very high... I mean, it, it people liked it. And then I found myself hooked on writing stories set in this little town, which I was by then calling Bluffton. And these stories eventually linked up and became the, the center of just north of nowhere. So that's kind of the way that started. But I, w I was writing those stories through the, the mid-90s up through the turn of the century and beyond. I, the book, as I say, was published in 2007, so I'd been writing them for... 12 years so is something there, like that is there any of these characters in there that go through the different stories or is it like a almost a, a, a continual story somebody once said that reading just north of nowhere is like watching the television series bluffton uh se season one <coughs> excuse me it's that the characters all reappear they all have their own story arcs uh uh, they all lead toward a conclusion, a climax. The book takes place over about a year in the life of this little town in southern Minnesota. Actually, I'm not specific in the book where the, the town is. But it's a, a town in the bluff country of southern Minnesota, which if you've ever been there uh, in that area, is a really unique geological experience. It's, uh, it's part of an area called the Driftless Zone which I had never heard of until I went to visit my friend up there. Uh, the Driftless Zone is an area of the upper Midwest that it covers uh, chunks of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, and into I Iowa. Uh, it's an area where during the last ice age, the glaciers missed it. Uh, for reasons known only to God and ancient magics, these giant glaciers that were coming down from the north, from Canada, what would later become Canada, into the United States, separated, leaving this oval area several hundred miles long by about 150 miles wide, untouched, and consequently maintaining their ancient visage they 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 look totally different from anything else in the midwest there are these little mountains there are bluffs and it's it's quite it's quite a beautiful area uh, people that have never been here might know a bit of it from uh neil gaiman's american gods because part of that is set in the uh in the uh area of wisconsin known as the wisconsin dells which are these bluffs and and a river cutting through the making 
a kind of deep canyon with uh, isolated rock structures that stick up into the air. Anyway, it's it's, it's quite an interesting area. So the Wisconsin Dells, uh, a vacation destination for many people, uh, is part of the Driftless Zone. And that's the area similar to where Bluffton is located. Now, I know you're going to st- – I love asking these kind of questions because you'll just struggle with this one then, Larry. What, where, where, would you pl- where would you place this book? Is it horror? It's got horror elements. As I said, uh, one of the stories was nominated – one of the chapters uh, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. That's the Horror Writers Association. Uh, there are – parts of the book that are absolutely horrific and there are parts of it that are very funny uh there's one um the god screamed and screamed then i ate him was written as an hp lovecraft uh homage so we have this town handyman the the kind of dim-witted uh yet somehow strangely connected to the earth handyman who knows nothing of the world outside of Bluffton, who encounters, has an encounter with the great old ones. Uh, And unlike any of H.P. Lovecraft's characters, this does not drive him mad. It just gets him pissed off. And he takes issues, he takes things into his own hands and deals with them. Uh, It was originally written, this is odd. uh, I wrote... uh, God screamed and screamed, then I ate him because some people I knew were putting together an anthology of H.P. Lovecraft uh, homages, uh, just generally comedic in nature. Uh, This thing was, the the book was called Cthulhu and the Coeds, Kids and Squids, and... I was asked to submit to it, and I had no idea what to do. And then I thought, well, I might as well take some of the characters, some of the characters from uh, Bluffton, and stick them in this environment, this this Lovecraftian uh, milieu. And uh, Bunch was—that's the name of the handyman—gets uh, involved with the the great old ones, and uh, so that's horror, and it has a light tone. Uh, it's, it's, I guess, scary if that kind of thing scares you. Uh, parts of it are, are pure contemporary fantasy. <coughs> Excuse me. Some parts of it are, uh, almost, uh, mystery. There are a couple of, there are a few murders that are committed in the town during the course of the story and are more or less solved by the, uh, town cop <laughs> uh, this is this is a strange story which I can't really tell fully because it's kind of a a town secret where in the real place but uh, the guy I based the town cop on was later arrested for some strange, some very strange things and I, and I and I really can't get into it uh, but so why mention it, Larry? Well, so Larry, get, uh, did, did I ask yeah. you, is it, is it out now in print format so people can go and buy it? Well, it <laughs> occasionally you find it on, on, on uh, Amazon. I mean, it used to be out on, it used to be on Amazon and in various bookstores, but now it's kind of out of print in that sense. But you can buy used copies of it or uh, something on Amazon in print. I still have a couple of copies left 
myself. But so it's only, they were it's becoming increasingly out, rare. It's only coming out now, this new form, in the digital format. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. That's in all. Various digital, in various digital formats. Available right now from Smashwords uh, at $4.99. Now, can you, you asked me before, can you not purchase from Smashwords? Yes, I probably can. It's just, I don't know oh. what the format oh. comes down, to be quite honest. I, I've actually They have, they, there are about six or seven formats that you can choose from when you go to Smashwords, See, as look, I understand. All I want is a plain format so I can now, with my little Kindle, upload it to, uh-huh. to Kindle, do you know what I mean? And, and read it off Kindle, because just, it's just fantastic. You know, it's made a as I, as, I, as I understand it, you can, but I'm not sure. Do you have an iPhone? Yes. I know you can on iPhone, because I have purchased things from Smashwords that are on my right. iPhone and on my uh, iPad. So, Larry, so, then, is, this, is what, this is what I'm going to ask you then. What's stopping yeah. you... Is it anything to do with copyright or anything like that? What's stopping you putting it on Lulu and getting it into a, like a print format, like a dead tree format? Well, the only thing that's stopping me from doing that is, is ignorance, <laughs> A, and B, the fact that down the road, the people that are going to be publishing uh, Drink for the Thirst to Come and possibly uh, Lord Dickens' declaration later next year uh, – Maybe interested in doing another edition, a print edition of of uh, just north of nowhere, but I I don't know. I once I kind of get over the the rush of this new world of e publishing, I I may decide to do a Lulu edition. I don't I don't know. I just don't know. Well, what we'll do is, Larry, I'll put a link on to to your site or wherever you want people to go because uh-huh. I certainly want a copy of it. You know what I mean? And so I'm hoping people are going to yeah. go and get this. Yeah. So I'll put a link on to, to either your email address or, or, <laughs> or whatever you want people to go to, and then we'll send them to wherever this elusive book is is up for sale. You mean? You mean I? I so uh, uh, technology. I mean, my yeah. friends, my my friends from Europe have come to my house to buy copies. Uh, <laughs> Diane, Diane literally walked, came to my apartment and, and got a copy. And, and actually Robin from Nova Scotia was here, but she brought her copy. I was here. I, I knew she was coming and I was prepared to give her a copy of it. And she came in with a copy and I signed it for her. But uh, so, uh, so it, it is still purchasable. I think, I think. But, well, like I said, uh, it's just from just personal, you know. Pers- I know a lot of people like the, you know, the kind of the book format. And I remember, you know, when we did Starships over the yeah. early days, Kieran would always go on about the kind of the touch and the feel and the texture. But I've just kind of totally fell in love with the digital format, you know, since this Kindle. It's just you can do it anywhere. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. And it's like, yeah. No, I know. I I I have Kindle on my on my uh, on my laptop, which is a Mac, and I have it on my iBook and iPad, and I. A good portion of my book purchases these days are via Kindle or iBook, but mostly Kindle, I'd say. Uh, yeah, the thing is, I I love books too. I mean, I I'm older than you, and I I I hearken back to the days when I used to. I, I loved used bookstores, uh, bookstores that really smelled of molding print and and old papers going to ruin uh so i uh 
my my home kind of looks like one of those aged bookstores. There are shelves everywhere and books kind of falling off of them. Well, I'm guessing so, I'm uh, guessing now though, Larry, people are kind of have books now, and I don't know if this is the kind of just you know the right way to go, but I think most people that now have books reread books. Now I don't. I do. I've never re- reread or re you know read over a book that I've already gulfed oh. down. Can I do it? Then I'm glad you didn't purchase a copy uh, <laughs> just north of nowhere because this new copy has so much extra material in it that was cut out from the first one. So when you finally do get it, uh, and if I have to, I will mail you a physical copy of it, but you should be able to buy it. You should be able to get it through Smashwords or in a week or so through Kindle or uh, whatever else. But Smashwords should have it in... I know when it was loading, when the when the file was loading, it was telling me all the different versions of that file that were being load, loaded, EPUB and things. I, I don't know what they are. I have no idea. Well, let's this move- is still a miracle to me that I'm talking to you in England here in Chicago. Let's move on then. So, what's this? Yeah. Uh, what's this? Drink a thirst to come. When's this coming out then? Um. Later this month, or possibly early June, uh, the publisher. Uh, it, it's a. It's a public. It, later it's a, this month, it's June now, July. Or? Yeah, yeah. Later in June or early July. Right. Uh, we were looking for mid June. Uh, it's now being moved back because the publisher is his wife is having a baby, and this is their second baby, and it's 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 all screwed up. It's a small press but it's a really really good one silver thought press uh out of new york uh has published some really beautiful looking and and reading books uh i i ran into them about five four or five years ago a story of mine appeared in an anthology that was put together by this guy from canada and silver thought press published it and i i thought they did an absolutely fantastic job. The book looked and felt great. It had some great stuff in it. And so when I decided I was going to put together a collection of my things that had either been published before or things that I had written that I just sort of put aside, which is a habit I have, uh, I thought, well, let me talk to Paul at Silver Thought because I had had a few transactions with him few years before when when uh a dark and deadly valley was the name of the anthology that my story was in and he said send me the thing and he he liked it and it turns out that one of the editors for silver thought lives here in chicago and i've since gotten connected with him and so we've done some of the work on editing the text and and taking care of it it's uh 20 uh, how many stories is it fifth it's not 20. It's uh, 15 or 16 stories. I, I forget which. Uh, I've been so focused on just north of nowhere. I can't even remember anymore. But uh, Drink for the Thirst to Come has a great about, title as well. Oh, thank you very much. I, I, I like it. Uh, it's, I, I won't tell you where it's from, but it's, 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 a, it's, it's a line in a piece of classical text that nobody will have read including myself, but I heard it and I thought, wow, what a great, what a great line that is. 
what a great concept. And uh, anyway, so that is uh, that's the title story in the in the book. Uh, and this one's coming out and, in paperback as well, is it? This one's actually going to well, be well. This this is going to be this is going to be yeah, ink on paper. Uh, eventually, maybe an ebook, but right now it's going to be. I don't know. He, I don't know what Paul's thinking is at this point. If it's going to be a hardcover and paper, or just uh, just trade paper. Well, but maybe it, you'll. Do you, do you want to come back on? It would be lovely to have you back on when that one comes out. You know what I mean? Well, that would be grand. I'd yes. love to. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a good size book. It's about the same size as Just North of Nowhere. Uh, Seventeen stories. The, the the strange thing is, I I have a I have a habit when I write something. I write because I enjoy writing. I enjoy the fact of having done it, or because I wanted to hear that story and find out what actually happens to this notion I had in my head overnight. I wake up and I start scribbling down ideas, and and I and I kind of pursue them to the end, and then I start fussing with them, and they turn out to be stories. And then sometimes I will submit them somewhere, and other times I'll just put them aside, put them as they say in the trunk. But uh, in this case, of course, they're in just in my computer. Uh, and I, uh, several of the stories in here, two of them, uh, was it two or three, two of them were written for anthologies that never happened. Uh, that happens apparently. That, that must <laughs> apparently. be, that must be like just gut wrenching, bloody annoying. That. Well, apparently it is. <laughs> If you're a serious writer, I'm sure it's really, really irritating. Uh, I know uh, both of these were being packaged by the same editor who's I, – I don't want to get into him and I don't want to berate anybody individually. But uh, he – the first story I wrote was a thing called Wind Shadows. Uh, and I wrote it for this guy for an anthology he was putting together, uh, a zombie anthology. I think I had just gotten my second Stoker nomination. And he apparently sent out uh, notices to everybody who had been Stoker nominated in the past three years or so uh, and said, I love your work. I'm putting together a zombie anthology. And I think your presence in that book would be fantastic so i said i sent him back a note saying you know well honestly i have never written a zombie story i've never read a zombie story in fact i don't even like zombie movies all that much but if you'd like me to i can have a go at it and i wrote this thing called wind shadows which eventually turned out to be set during the first world war in the trenches in 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 europe uh in, in Belgium, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, it went off to him. It was accepted. Uh, I mean, some great people in this book. I mean, some really top-ranked names in horror writing were in this book. Gary Brodenbeck was in it and, and a bunch of other people. Anyway, uh, Skip, uh, John S uh, Skip, and uh, Skip Inspector. Uh, and... Uh, Nothing, nothing, nothing happened. And I sent him a few notes and he said, well, I'm, I'm still working on it, still trying to find a, a, a blah, blah, blah. And then he said, do you have anything, by the way, on horror set during World War II, since you wrote this thing about World War I? 
And I said, well, in fact, I do. And I sent him a copy of a story I'd written about a year before. No, I wrote it and then never tried to sell it anywhere. It was one of those things that disappeared into the tummy of my computer and just lay there moldering with the rest. And I said it to him and he said, this is great. And that became the anthology, the part of the anthology called uh, uh, A Dark and Deadly Valley, which is a comment from Churchill. Great. And it looked great. And I'm very happy. I got paid. The, the money was good. Uh, I think we got 10 cents a word on it or 15 cents a word, something like that. It was decent money. And I was very happy. And then he and then I kept saying, well, what about the zombie thing that I got? I really like that story, that wind shadows. Nice story, don't you think? And he said, yes, yes, but I'm, I'm doing this other thing now. On it, I'm, I'm creating a shared world anthology uh, set in a post-apocalyptic world uh, after a relatively minor nuclear exchange. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for, and he was explaining this whole shared world thing. And I thought, well, I've never done that. So that might be fun. And I eventually wrote this thing called drink for the thirst to come, which I sent to him and that molded around. And then suddenly all the writers that were, had been part of the zombie anthology and the world war two anthology, and now the, shared world anthology of uh, post-apocalyptic uh, world started emailing each other. <laughs> it became a little, a little writer support group online. And there were the one, the, the post-apocalyptic book had 10, it was 10 people that were specifically invited to submit stories to that. And then there were maybe 15 people in the other three books uh, a lot of a lot of crossovers and we started griping toward each other about about this business and finally the writers one by one said wrote to the editor saying i'm pulling my story i haven't heard from you and etc cetera, etc cetera. so and then i find out maybe 2 years later that the guy had suddenly decided he didn't want to do this anymore and went off to do something else so I was left with those two stories that I just put in the, the, you know, but I don't, as I said, you know, this would probably really piss off real, real writers. Uh, uh, but I'm just a guy who writes, so I don't, uh, you well, know. I'm still sick in you, Larry, to be quite honest. The most, um, well, I am, well, okay. coming, I, I am a writer, but I'm not a, so, I'm not a. Hello, hello. Yes, I'm saying it's coming out. Oh. So, it, you know, yes, it is. At least, you know, it might have took a few, a few more years than what you realise, but at least it's coming yeah. out. You know what I mean? It's coming out under your own steam as well. So, yeah, yeah. Well, Larry, so. listen. Tell us when it comes out. We'll get you back on because I'd love to. I can do I this all day. That absolutely. Shall. So, listen. Look after yourself. Keep on the diet. Stop the drinking, oh. fags. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I gave up drink and and cigarettes. Many years ago, I, I don't, I don't think I've had even so much as a beer in the last six months or a year. And cigarettes, <laughs> I gave that up when I had. <laughs> I gave up cigarettes the year I had two cases of pneumonia in one six-month period or something like that. So that was 
15 years ago. Well, so. listen, you, you look after yourself. That's all I can say. I shall. Right. Well, listen, and thank you, Tom. You're more than welcome, Larry. Honestly, look after yourself, and we'll get you back on soon. Indeed. Take good care. Thanks, Tony, and hello to everybody. There you go. Again, link on. There is links on to Larry's book. And now it is actually in the Kindle store as well. So Kindle everywhere. If you've got a ah, God, I just love the Kindle, to be quite honest. I'm really happy with it. I'm trying to hint on to, and I, I think, well, I was trying to hint on to get the, the Amazon light case for Father's Day, but it's a bit too expensive, the wife says, so it might be my birthday. <laughs> but you can get Larry's Ebook there, just north of nowhere, which is a great title. Do you know what I mean? He comes up with some excellent stuff, Larry's, like that kind of thing, quirkiness, which grabs your attention. Pop over the front of the website or go on to Larry's website there, get that copy. You know what I mean? It's cheap as chips and it's bloody Larry Santura, man. He's a fantastic writer. And we'll try and get him back when when his new book comes out as well, actually in, in a paper format, which I will not be getting. No, I will only, I'm, I'm now digital committed. There you go. So that is Starship Sova. I hope you enjoyed it. And again, a big thank you to people that's donated. They're getting swamped with donations, which is fantastic. Thank you so much. So if you've donated to Starship Sova, you kept the girl running proud. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.